2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Israeli airstrikes continue to devastate the Gaza Strip as violence between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas enters its ninth day with no signs of abating. The air attacks have killed more than 200 Palestinians in Gaza, including more than 60 children, prompting a Palestinian general strike to protest the bombings. At least 10 Israelis have been killed by Hamas's barrage of rockets, including at least two children. We look at why the violence is erupting now and prospects for a ceasefire. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The worst Israeli-Palestinian fighting in years has entered a second week. And yesterday, President Biden expressed support for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas militants on a call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Biden also, quote, reiterated his firm support for Israel's right to defend itself against indiscriminate rocket attacks, according to the White House, those attacks that have killed 10. Israel's offensive in Gaza has killed 212 people and injured well over 1,000. We're joined now by the Brookings Institution's Shari Hamid. Thanks so much for joining us, Shari Hamid. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Greg Carlstrom of The Economist. Thanks for being with us as well, Greg Carlstrom. Sure, thank you. Greg Carlstrom is Middle East correspondent for The Economist and author of How Long Will Israel Survive the Threat from Within? I understand, Greg Carlstrom, that you are in Jordan following events this morning we woke to the news that palestinians across israel gaza and the west bank joined in a general strike as israeli air attacks on gaza continue can you give us a snapshot of what's happening right now
3: well from a military perspective what's happening between israel and gaza may not look like it today given that airstrikes are continuing and rocket attacks are continuing Uh, But both sides seem to be moving in the direction of a ceasefire. The intensity of Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. uh, A couple of days ago, if you spoke to witnesses in Gaza, they described the airstrikes as the heaviest they have ever lived through in in four rounds of conflict with Israel. Uh, The intensity of those strikes has lessened somewhat today. Hmm. Uh, Similarly, the rockets being fired by Palestinian militants in Gaza uh, not being aimed at Tel Aviv, at the sort of major population centers in central Israel. Today, they've been aimed at cities and towns in southern Israel. Uh, they've been shorter range and smaller barrages. So uh, although the, this fighting is continuing, there were two uh, foreign workers, two Thai foreign workers killed in a mortar attack in Israel today. Um, although the fighting is continuing, there there does seem to be movement slowly on both sides towards perhaps winding this down and, and accepting a ceasefire
2: is that the main sign that you're getting that uh, a ceasefire or that either side is trying to seek a ceasefire soon the the slightly lessened intensity of the attacks or is there more
3: so there's that there's also the rhetoric that we've heard coming out of the israeli security cabinets uh, over the past week or so there was a meeting uh last wednesday of the security cabinet the message coming out of there was expect another week of fighting uh, there was another meeting on Sunday of the Israeli security cabinet, and uh, afterwards, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying uh, the fighting would go on for at least a couple of more days. Uh, now, the message that you're hearing from the Israelis is that uh, they are they are moving towards they are they are getting ready for uh, a cessation of hostilities here. Uh, I think on the Palestinian side, I think Hamas uh, has been more willing to accept the ceasefire. They have been. Uh, I think, somewhat surprised by the intensity of the Israeli airstrikes on Gaza over the past week, and they have been more willing uh, to to end these hostilities. It's really Israel that has kept pushing and has wanted more time uh, to continue striking Gaza.
2: Both sides, Greg Kroschelm, have lost lives in this recent violence. What's not gone unnoticed, of course, by international observers and the press is that the casualties have been overwhelmingly Palestinian. You were just talking about a Hamas Hamid may be surprised by the intensity of the attacks, but can you explain this disproportionality for our listeners?
3: Well, you see this every time there is a conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas. We saw this in 2014 when there was a war that lasted for 51 days. Uh, We saw this in the conflict in 2008, 2009. Uh, Gaza is a place that has been under a blockade, an Israeli and Egyptian blockade since 2007, since Hamas took power. Uh, It is a place where two million civilians uh, are stuck in an extremely small bit of territory where there is nowhere to go when there is a round of fighting uh, between Israel and Hamas. There are not safe parts of Gaza. People do not have shelters they can go to, they don't have safe havens they can escape to. Uh, And so we saw, for example, a couple of days ago, uh, a series of Israeli airstrikes that were purportedly meant to strike. Uh, an underground tunnel network which the israeli army said was being used by hamas and other militant groups to to move throughout gaza that airstrike brought down a crowded street uh, that was on top of this tunnel network it brought down a number of houses on that street Uh, you had entire families that were trapped in the rubble Uh, people living in gaza when there are these rounds of fighting they simply have nowhere to go they simply have nowhere that is safe
2: shadi hamid as we've noted this is the worst violence in the territory since about 2014. Can you remind us what immediately triggered the clashes on May 10th?
4: Yeah, sure. So uh, it's not, so this hasn't happened in a vacuum. And I think there's a tendency sometimes to say, well, Hamas is lobbing rockets, Israel is responding and taking that narrow view. But tensions had been building um, in East Jerusalem for months, if not years, um, there was the threatened eviction of Palestinian families in a particular neighborhood. Um, there was a nonviolent campaign to raise awareness about that. Unfortunately, it didn't get much if any attention in 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 um, in most sort of international outlets. Um, so that that's the kind of context. Now, what happened um, quite recently? So uh, last week is that in the final days of Ramadan, as these protests about the forced evictions were gathering and becoming a little bit bigger, um, you see more police violence against uh, protesters. And specifically, there was a heavy-handed, quite heavy-handed Israeli police raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site in Islam, at a very kind of sensitive time, the final days of the holy month of Ramadan. And the um, Israeli forces used uh, rubber bullets, stun grenades, more than 300 were injured. So that was a major escalation and it was being egged on by far right settlers and also allies of Benjamin Netanyahu, who are quite um uncompromising in their approach. So in other words, um, this has been building up and there were a series of events that led up to our current moment that... You know, in an ideal world, wouldn't have happened, and we have to assess why they happened. Um, and we can talk about, um, you know, Hamas uh, being responsible for lobbying rockets and escalation. And there's no doubt that indiscriminate rockets on Israelis uh, is a war crime, as Human Rights Watch has documented. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is this broader context, and if we want to prevent something like this from happening in the future we have to pay close attention to the origins of the story.
2: Yes, and I definitely want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, But in the meantime, are you as hopeful as as Greg Carlstrom may be about the prospect of this winding down?
4: Well, my my general approach to the Middle East is to not be hopeful about anything. But, um, so I mean, last time around in the 2014 war, there seemed to be promise for a ceasefire. I think it was around week one or week two. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And then the fighting continued for an, for another several weeks. So it may seem like we're having movement now, but you never know. And there's a risk that we might lose that that window um, and something might escalate or get worse. So I think that's certainly a concern. Um I'm not very encouraged by the Biden administration's approach. I mean, they haven't explicitly called for a ceasefire. They haven't been forceful. It's been a little bit tepid, wishy-washy. And you just have to start to ask yourself: Is the U.S. putting the necessary pressure on the Israelis mm. to bring this to a close? It is worth noting that what, what Greg is saying is certainly correct. That there have been signs that it might be coming to a close. But then you hear what someone like Benjamin Netanyahu said the, just the other day, I think um, two days ago, where he said um, this is going to take some time. Maybe he's just trying to, you know, steal his own um, his own citizens for the potential of something being longer. But when Netanyahu comes out and says that, you also have to be a little bit worried about what's going on in his own mind um, and if he feels that he can kind of stand down. Now, considering that there is a lot of pressure on him to be as aggressive as possible from his more, let's say, uh, far-right allies in Israel.
2: Yes. In the meantime, though, Greg Carlstrom, the UN is reporting of an increasingly dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Uh, They were reporting that 52,000 people have been displaced, buildings numbering 450 or so damaged or destroyed completely. Can you talk a little bit about that and what's unfolding there?
3: right and this is to to provide some background on this this is a place where even in normal times uh, life is intolerable uh, the economy has all but collapsed in Gaza because of the Israeli and Egyptian blockades uh, about half the population of Gaza is unemployed most people there rely on uh, international aid in order to survive uh, you might have 16 hours a day without electricity uh, the drinking water that comes out of your tap is contaminated with untreated sewage that is spilling into the aquifer in Gaza. Uh, It is a place where the infrastructure and the economy have all but fallen apart over the past 15 years. So what we've seen over the past week and what we've seen uh, in in previous conflicts between Israel and, and Hamas is This destruction makes matters worse, and it takes years to be fixed if it is ever going to be fixed. I remember after the 2014 war, being in Gaza a year after, two years after, uh, and and still coming, you know, meeting people uh, who were homeless, who had not been able to fix up their homes for lack of money, for lack of building materials, uh, the consequences of these conflicts endure for years. And so, right, what we've seen here, 52,000 people uh, have been displaced, uh, have been displaced. Uh, The electricity situation in Gaza has gotten worse because uh, the power plants are running out of fuel, which has to come across a a crossing with Israel, uh, which has been mostly closed for the past week. And so uh, the electric supply is down to four or five hours a day. One of the main desalination plants that provides water uh, is offline. So these already intolerable conditions made much, much worse uh, by this fighting.
2: Greg Carlson, Middle East correspondent for The Economist, really appreciate your reporting. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're also talking with Shadi Hamid, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. You, our listeners, are with us as we're talking about the violent conflict between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which has killed more than 200 Palestinians in Gaza and 10 Israelis. We want to know what are your questions and thoughts about what's happening. What do you want to know about why now? What context do you feel you need to understand? Give us a call at 866-733-6786 with your questions. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Why is war in Gaza returning now, and why does it always seem to return with stubborn periodic insistence? That's the question Shadi Hamid asked readers of his Atlantic piece to consider before elevating simple narratives in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's here to offer context on what's happening in Gaza. And you, our listeners, are also with us with your questions and thoughts about what's happening and why it's happening now. The number 866-733-6786 if you want to join the conversation. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum and email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Shadi mean, in that piece that I just referenced, you urge us not to take what you call the narrow Irreconcilable view, basically. Can you uh, tell us what is the narrow view in your view?
4: Yeah, sure. So I, I think you know, having gotten into a lot of these debates over the past few days on social media and elsewhere, I think that there is a particular line that this is all Hamas's fault, and Israel is doing what any other country would do. And certainly Israel does have a right to defend itself. No country should have to live under the barrage of rockets that are, especially ones that are indiscriminate. Um, but, um, but then you have a set of other questions that you have to ask yourself when you want to understand the broader context. And obviously most Americans and most people aren't, won't be aware for the reasons I mentioned earlier of the lead up to what happened and especially the, the difficult context, um, In East Jerusalem, but I go uh, in in my Atlantic article, I go a a couple steps further and I try to highlight the basic fact of the occupation, that if we're looking at why the situation is untenable and why there are um, such grievances um, in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem is because there is ongoing injustice and repression of Palestinians. So that really dates from 1967. Um, People can debate whether Gaza is technically occupied. I won't get into the legal aspects of that here, but at the very least, it's fair to say that there is a pretty intensive blockade uh, in Gaza um, that prevents them from being able to access basic goods and services. If you have emergency um, uh, medical issues, sometimes you simply can't get out of the territory of Gaza. So we can't lose sight of that deeper context because I'm of the belief that as long as the occupation and the blockade continue, and as and as long as Palestinians don't have a right to self-determination, then violent conflict is inevitable. And we've seen that for the past 20 years. Um, you know, As we've already said, every couple of years, we see an outbreak of violence. Um, So the question is, are we willing to live like this indefinitely and just keep on having these periodic repeats of wars and conflicts and clashes? Um, And I I would like to think that the answer is no. And if the answer is no, then it requires us to think very deeply about how we address uh, the deeper set of issues that have really been with us for decades.
2: Well, and I think Richard... Would like you wanted you to stress the things that you did, Richard Wright. Let's be clear about the West Bank and Gaza. Gaza has been in one form of blockade or another for decades. And let's not forget about the ongoing controls over Palestinians in the West Bank that are incrementally more intense. So the other question then is, I mean, how do you see Hamas's interests here? Do you see them as aligned with this broader Palestinian anger about treatment, about occupation, and so on? Or do you see them basically exploiting that? Can you help us understand what drives Hamas here?
4: Sure. I mean, what Hamas is doing is somewhat predictable, unfortunately. Um, they they look for moments of opportunity, and they have, they've had some declining popularity in recent years. There's, they've certainly become less relevant. So I think for them the question is often, what is self-serving? What helps them? And obviously that's a selfish calculation because it's Gazans who have to pay the price um, with, with what Hamas ends up deciding to do. But Hamas did see an opening because the al Mosque was attacked and Hamas presents itself as a kind of defender of, of Muslim holy sites and, 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 and certainly Jerusalem specifically. So it's part of their brand. And then they decided that this was the moment where they can pro- try to project relevance and make a show of force and get back into um, the thrust of the debate and international attention. And That's precisely what they've done. And I think it's reasonable to expect that they will have a, a, a boost. It's hard to say how much, but a boost in popularity um, uh, in Gaza, perhaps in uh, in, the, in the West Bank. Um, you know, So that's one thing that they're looking for and also um, that they've benefited in the past from ceasefires, since after a ceasefire, there's generally an interest in at least easing the blockade a little bit, that easing does not last. But this is a kind of formula that Hamas has used time and time again. When its back is against the wall and it, it, wants, it wants to matter, it starts lobbying rockets uh, against Israel. And again, I mean, um, Hamas may pay some of the price in the sense that their military capabilities will be degraded, but it's ultimately um, uh, people in Gaza who have to pay the price for Hamas's um, uh, kind of cavalier self-interest where they're obviously not paying close attention to what happens to civilians because they know this is going to happen if they lob rockets at Israel. So, um, uh, but again, they benefit, they're doing it.
2: Well, Paul writes, how is one supposed to, quote, negotiate with a designated terrorist organization whose charter denies your right to exist and calls for your total destruction? Hamas and intentionally target civilians israel warns occupants to evacuate before destroying a building until the palestinians reject hamas there's no chance for a peaceful resolution to this unfortunate situation bill writes some things i haven't seen in the news how many of the palestinian casualties were hamas fighters how many of the civilian casualties were caused by hamas rockets fire misfiring and falling short of the border i don't know if you have that information shadi hamid but yeah. Uh, yeah sure, go right ahead if you do
4: well you know on on the question of um the civilian casualties, first of all, we do know how it's been in the past so in in the twenty fourteen war there were about uh there were about twenty one twenty two hundred killed an incredible number about fifteen hundred were civilians and that that's, um, kind of internationally recognized numbers, um, and people generally accept those numbers. So it gives an indication that usually in these conflicts, a clear majority, a large majority are in fact civilians. Now this time around the numbers that we're seeing are more than 200 killed. We don't know how many of them are civilians, but what we do know is that more than 60 are children, um, which is a, uh, more than, uh, more than one quarter of the number killed. So this narrative that Israel does whatever it can to minimize civilian casualties, I think has to be questioned because the facts on the ground simply don't support that conclusion. Now, it it may be true that Israel isn't, it's not as if Israeli commanders are waking up in the morning and saying, let's kill Palestinians. No, that's not what we're saying. But they are making calculations where there's a certain tolerance for what they would call collateral damage, where they might say, well, here's a 14 story building with one Hamas operative that we're trying to target. And then they pretty much destroy the entire 14 story building, even though there are primarily residential apartments in that building. Now, that's a debate. Is that something that we're comfortable with as observers is that proportionate i would argue that it's not proportionate but obviously others say that hey if there's even a the most minute hamas presence there then they're asking for it basically i think that's a morally problematic position to take um you know the your first uh, your the, the first commenter said well it ultimately comes down to hamas so a similar point um, and i think the problem there is that there's no scenario that I can envision where Hamas is erased from the Palestinian political scene. It is um, it is a mass movement. It's, it's not particularly popular, but it does have a base of support in Gaza. It's been around for decades now. It's not clear to me how Hamas disappears. And if they are one of the um, important factions in the Palestinian scene, whether we like it or not, They're still going to be there. So I don't I think it's a bit of a cop out sometimes to say, well, this is all about Hamas, because basically what that means is that nothing is going to change because Hamas is probably going to be there or be somewhere for for some time to come. So we can't use that as a reason to not do anything.
2: Well, let me go to caller Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie hi i want to know why we're still funding the wealthy far-right state of israel given its provocations against the palestinian people carrie thanks for your question um shari hamid
4: okay <laughs> so look, i mean I think it's something that it, a lot
2: of people have been wondering right we yeah, it's, it's we, a good question yes, it's a good question I,
4: um so, I mean, first of all, there's a longstanding relationship. It has been a close ally. So they're just a question of history. If you've been close allies with a country for a long time, it becomes harder to change the nature of the relationship. Um, I think that the, maybe the, the, the question that I would focus on more, because I'm not necessarily here calling for ending our relationship with Israel. First of all, so, realistic, I, th- I think there's also, there are legitimate reasons to support um, Israel's right to exist. I mean, I think it's possible to do two things, to say Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state, but also to condemn unequivocally Israel's disproportionate bombing in a place like Gaza. Those two are not, nece- are, shouldn't be seen as intention, right? But what I what I think we should focus on is to say how we can use our close relationship with Israel to put pressure on the Israeli government to actually observe a ceasefire. And that's one area that I've been disappointed when it comes to the Biden administration, that they haven't, they haven't been forceful in calling for an immediate ceasefire on Thursday. uh, Last week, Biden said um, that he hasn't seen a significant overreaction from Israel. And I think it's fair to assume that that was interpreted as a green light for Israel to continue and to escalate um, it's not a great sign when um, you know our president is kind of sort of shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh you know that's reasonable and not actually mentioning anything about um, Palestinian lives or showing any outward sympathy towards the Palestinians. so we give Israel more than three billion dollars uh, of, of military aid a year that gives us leverage and I think we should use that to tell our um, Israeli counterparts, Look, this has been going on. It's been going on too long. The toll is getting higher. Enough is enough. That I think is what we have to be focusing on now. And it's actually our our relationship with Israel that helps us to do that. The problem is historically we're not great at using our leverage with Israel. There's we've often, unfortunately, I would say, uh, um, had unquestioning support for whatever the Israeli government. Is doing, And I think with any ally, we should support them when they're doing things that we approve of that are in line with our values and interests. And if an ally is doing something that we think is detrimental to regional interests or our values, then we should be very clear about that with them as well.
2: Well, Let me thank Carrie for the question. And then this listener writes, can your guests talk about the domestic political advantage that Netanyahu gains from this conflict?
4: Sure. Well, in the lead up to this um, crisis, there was a real chance, um, uh, not just a real chance, but a pretty high one, that Netanyahu would be unseated as prime minister, that opposition groups were making progress to kind of cobble together a kind of unwieldy coalition. And then if that had worked, uh, Netanyahu would no longer be prime minister. And and he's been, um, I think, the longest uh, serving prime minister in Israeli history um, that's not to say that Netanyahu kind of like again purposely decided um, to um, to kind of instigate problems in Jerusalem because it, that's been going on for a while, and it's not just about Netanyahu; it's also about right-wing settlers and other groups. But um, certainly, Netanyahu does seem like he will benefit from this because the the opposition coalition that was trying to unseat him, it seems that at least for now. That no longer seems particularly promising, because the um, because of what's happened has sort of shaken some of those alliances. And it does show that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a survivor. Um, and I guess he finds ways to use things to his advantage. And I think he is using this to his advantage. you know, now that it's actually happening, he does see an advantage, and that's rational. Any political actor is going to see a situation like this and think to themselves, how can I come out of this in a stronger political position? So in that sense, he's very attuned to where Israeli public opinion is. And there's a lot of calls for him to be very aggressive with the Palestinians. The, um, the right wing in Israel has been growing for many years now, and they are incredibly influential with Netanyahu. So he, he um, will, is going to feel some pressure from them.
2: Yes. I want to bring Julian Borger into this conversation, World Affairs Editor for The Guardian, covers Washington. Julian Borger, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure. We've been hearing Shadi Hamid talk a little bit about Biden's response. And as we know, you know, Biden has a long history. He was a longtime supporter of Israel in the Senate. He's historically been in favor of maintaining those traditional alliances that the U.S. has. You know, as you write in your piece, he called himself Israel's best Catholic friend. So can you give us your assessment of Biden's reaction and what kind of policy shifts you think Biden would be willing to make?
1: Well, I think, yeah, this has really been about Biden himself and his uh, own judgment. And they have been, uh, in the White House, fairly impervious to pressure from the progressive wing, having initially, during the late stages of the campaign, early stages of the administration, been open to talking to the progressive wing about uh foreign policy about the middle east and about relations with saudi arabia and israel but i uh, think the white house has made clear that this is off limits uh this is something that uh uh biden believes in the relationship with with alliances in general and with, in uh with uh, israel in particular
2: so it doesn't sound like you see him conditioning any aid anytime soon uh, as we were just discussing a little bit earlier
1: yeah, I think that that has really sort of been off the political table since under you know, the Bush the Elder um, uh, and uh, Jim Baker. Uh, uh, it's really about much more minor things uh, uh, like calling for a ceasefire, um, and is it instructive in a way to see how much the uh, the sort of goalposts have moved over time. We look back in. Time of uh, George W. Bush, and there is a sort of similar uh, incidents of uh, you know bombing in Gaza and a uh, building being destroyed and civilians being killed. And Bush's spokesman at the time, Ari Fleischer, said uh, the president uh, believes this is too heavy-handed, this is disproportionate, uh, and these are the sort of uh, statements that the much of the Democratic Party is hoping to hear from Biden, but is not hearing. So it's it's really striking how much the the sort of discourse has changed.
2: Yes, uh, you know, and we're coming up on a break, but Biden still, though he has managed to kind of keep the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who's really been openly opposed to Netanyahu and so on and his policies at bay, he is facing a very different kind of potentially domestic political pressure than he's had in previous years, right? Not as president, but of course, in terms of just the way that views are changing around Israel.
1: That's right, and if he was any doubt about that, by chance today he was going to the, or he was gone to the Ford uh, motor factory in Dearborn, uh, Michigan, which is home to some 40,000 Arab Americans, and they lined the streets uh, uh, with uh, Palestinian flags, Um, uh, protesting uh, at his policies, so any doubt he may have had about the pressures inside the party would have been made very vivid today.
2: We're talking with Julian Borger, World Affairs Editor for The Guardian. Shari Hamid is with us, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. And you, our listeners, are with us. And we'll get to more of your calls and questions right after the break. We're talking about the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which has left more than 200-plus dead in Gaza and 10 Israelis. We're also talking about the U.S. response. And if you have thoughts on that, share those two. 866-733-6786 is the number. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the worst Israeli-Palestinian fighting in years that has entered its second week, and we're talking about what is behind it why it's happening now with shadi hamid senior fellow at the brookings institution julian borger world affairs editor at the guardian and also you our listeners you can email us your questions or comments forum at kqed.org post them on twitter or facebook at kqed forum or you can always call us 866-733-6786 and let me go to colin in san francisco now now hi colin good
6: morning um is the two-state solution uh, that you know various U.S. administrations have championed effectively dead? Post-1967, it seems that the settlement policy that Israel has pursued has precluded having a viable Palestinian state. If that's the case, what's then? Should all the Palestinians in territories controlled by the Israeli government then have full Israeli citizenship, even if that um, threatens uh, Israel's identity as a Jewish state? Or should they uh, effectively continue to live under what they perceive to be an apartheid state?
2: Colin, thanks. Uh, Shadi Hamid, it's a big question and, and a lot of follow-ups also as well from Colin that are really hitting at the heart of what a lot of people are wondering about. I'll go to you first on that.
4: Sure, well, I mean, I think he, I think he gets to the, the fundamental problem here is that yeah. um, the two-state solution becomes harder uh By the year uh, because there is increasing settlement encroachment and also the Israeli government has become uh, less interested in peace compared to say where it was in the 2000s so in that sense we're not even improving or staying where we were we're regressing um, and Netanyahu has pretty much stopped talking about an actual two-state solution and um, may even be against it. So I think that um, that raises the question of the alternative. I think one alternative is just the status quo. I mean people always say well, it's either a two-state or a one-state solution there is a third option which is just the indefinite continuation of the present situation <laughs> which is certainly tragic yes. um, as for the as for the one state, the one-state or so-called, you know, binational solution, where Jews and Arabs all have citizenship under the same one state—I mean, I've, I tend to see that as a non-starter because it's hard for me to imagine the Jewish majority in Israel accepting not being a majority, because at some point it would mean that um, Arabs might constitute um, a majority of the of the one sort of catch-all state. So even if there's strong moral or practical reasons to just say, hey, let's just put them together, it's tough to see how that actually happens in the real world. Um, I think ultimately, if we can imagine um, an Israeli prime minister who actually supported peace, if there was enough political will, you can dismantle settlements. Now, it's challenging and there would be considerable protests and domestic opposition, but ultimately, it is possible. I mean, you probably have to do some land swaps, too, where where su- some of the settlements are, Israel would keep those parts of the West Bank, but then give other, uh, give other parts um, uh, to, uh, to what would be a future Palestinian state and essentially swap in that regard. Um, so there are ways to get around some of those issues, but ultimately, you need leadership to actually want that
2: well do you think this latest conflict shari hamid indicts the strategy for lack of a better way of of coining it that basically palestinian demands for statehood need to be contained as opposed to actually trying to resolve these types of demands or resolve this type yeah. of conflict yeah yes
4: yeah, so i think a lot of pe- a lot of people are comfortable with what i mentioned the indefinite perpetuation of the status quo and they say that um I think from an Israeli standpoint, I mean, Israel is doing pretty good up until this um, outbreak of violence. um, You know, there there wasn't there wasn't a, a, a daily presence of violence that most Israelis had to deal with compared to, say, the 2000s, where, if you recall, the slate of suicide bombings, which made it a very a very big issue for Israeli politics. The Palestinians have oftentimes become afterthoughts because they're just not registering and they're not there. Um, And the conflict seems very far away. There was also a time when there was more exchange um, between Palestinians across the Green Line and Israelis. But now you could be an Israeli Jew who's never met a Palestinian um, from the West Bank or from Gaza. So in that sense, um, Israel doesn't have a lot of incentives to make major compromises or concessions because it's doing pretty good. Um, In terms of its international relations, it's having stronger um, contacts with India and various European countries, building a relationship with China and Russia. So the problem is, if there's no real international pressure, how do you get the Israeli government to actually get serious about peace? And that brings me back to the question of the U.S. role. That is where the U.S. role comes into play Um, in terms of um, trying to put put pressure, not just on Israel, but also on on Palestinians. But it's hard to put pressure, like, first of all, which Palestinians and what are you putting pressure on them to do? Mm. Because they don't really have much power. If we're talking about the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas is president. Mahmoud Abbas doesn't have much power. He's become somewhat irrelevant in the current conflict. So yeah. it's also a question of what do you actually ask the Palestinians to do, considering they're in such a weak position?
2: Well, that also brings us back to this immediate conflict, Julian Borger, which is, you know, we were talking about how President Biden spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday and said that he supports a ceasefire. But but what does that mean practically? How would one be engineered? Who would need to be involved? What would the U.S. role be?
1: I think it's very clear from Biden's statement that this isn't something that the U.S. was going to Uh, be responsible for orchestrating this is going to be the US supporting a a ceasefire once the parties have agreed to it. Uh, Obviously they have been in touch with the Egyptians, the Qataris uh, as uh, uh, channels to Hamas and direct uh, uh, communication with Israel. But what seems clear from the readout, uh, certainly from the Israeli end, uh, that the Phone call yesterday didn't represent US pressure, uh, direct pressure for a, a ceasefire, more an acceptance that uh, the IDF, the Israeli forces, had a couple more days to go uh, or had more work to do as they saw it in their military operations in Gaza uh, and then would be ready to uh, pull out. So it read more as an acknowledgement of that reality than the U.S. really putting on pressure uh, for the IDF to pull out.
2: Let me go to caller Donald next in Oakland. Hi, Donald. Hi. uh, Two
0: quick points. One, uh, I've never seen anything in uh, the press related to the uh, evictions, the forced evictions. Is that being done by just right-wing Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem, or is that uh, something the government has done? Um, But the other point is um, the Israelis must clearly have known that a heavy-handed response uh, in East Jerusalem at the end of Ramadan would provoke a, a lot of resentment and response in turn. So was that an attempt by Netanyahu to deliberately provoke a... Ah Palestinian response, especially from Hamas, to strengthen his um, his hand in in um in Israel
2: hmm. well, Donald, thanks for those questions. Getting back to some context here. I'll go to you, Shari Hamid.
4: yeah, so on the first part of that, um it's you know right wing settlers who are involved in some of these uh, land grabs and other other right wings right uh, right wing groups. they're not necessarily all settlers per se. Um, in East Jerusalem, it's part of a broader effort that's been ongoing for years to change the demographic balance in East Jerusalem to make it less Arab and more Jewish. So it's gotten worse, but it's not necessarily a new thing. Um, you know, whether the government, the role of the government, I think it's fair to say that the government has not opposed it and, in some ways, has encouraged it uh, by. Sort of, um, you know, playing footsie with some of these more problematic groups, and not and not sort of trying to bring their own side in line. Um, ultimately, these these evictions were to be, you know, were to be considered by the Supreme Court. So um, there is some legal recourse, but um, unfortunately, that doesn't always work out um, in the, the the way one might hope. Um, on the um, on, on the second part is it's an interesting specula. I mean, it's hard to know what is in that. it was hard. I mean, I think it would be he be, uh, you know, such a devious strategic mastermind if he was able to pull all of this off to save his political career and to stay in power for another few years. I mean, I just I don't think that most politicians, however skillful they are, do reach that level of strategic. Uh, genius, let's say. Um, I think it would also probably be re- if it also came out that he was purposely trying to instigate something to cause a con to cause a conflict of this nature. I think it would also be uh quite controversial, even in, in Israel and, and just obviously also more broadly. But, um, but either way, the effect is the same, and I think that generally we can say that Netanyahu does think that he can benefit from instigating Palestinians. So even if he didn't instigate in this particular instance at the end of Ramadan, he generally does try to rile up his own base um, to benefit politically. And we see this, especially days before an election, and Israel has had um, several elections um, in the past two years, and that's been part of the issue, is that oftentimes Netanyahu will up his anti-Arab rhetoric, In the days before an election because that gets his base um, motivated and that's that's just unfortunately the way it is sometimes in democracy, even even democracies that are functioning and vibrant people use xenophobia to benefit in electoral terms.
2: Julian Borger, a couple of days ago, the U.S.'s U.N. envoy Linda Thomas-Greenfield surprised some policy watchers by making a statement about the ongoing conflict where she said that the U.S. is urging Israel to avoid incitement, violent attacks, terrorist acts, as well as evictions, including in East Jerusalem. Do you see her statement as indicating something more substantive in terms of a shift or, I mean, or at least maybe just something very different from the last administration. But I'm just curious what you made of that.
1: Well, yeah, it was obviously very different from the last administration, notably not different if you take the the sum of all the things that have come out of state and uh, the White House. Jen mm-hmm. Psaki had made similar uh, references to evictions being um, unhelpful and uh, about uh preserving the status quo in the holy sites and so on yes. and so this is what has been a bit frustrating for american allies at the un in that the things that they are saying that uh, linda thomas greenfield was saying in the general assembly assembly is not very different from the europeans for example but they are refusing to sign on and have refused three times to sign on to a common statement saying that
2: Julian Borger again is World Affairs Editor at The Guardian. Shari Hamid is with us, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. We're talking about the violent conflict between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas with you, our listeners. And I also want to let you know this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to more calls. Let me go to Lauren in Novato. Hi, Lauren. Join us.
6: Yes, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, I want to say that I am a Baptist. I'm a non-Jew, and I have lived and worked in Israel for the U.S. government. And it is incredible that the um, Israeli military, the IDF, they get the phone numbers of people in the buildings and homes that they're going to bomb, and they telephone them and tell them to get out. And that's just incredible that they go to that extreme. Now, Hamas is intentionally trying to use... uh, the their own people as human shields because they put their their military infrastructure inside uh, apartment buildings and and such that there's no way Israel can completely avoid human shields and I do know for a fact I have been there and heard their military talking and how they try so hard to avoid uh, a human, uh, you know, non-military civilian death.
2: Lauren, I I thank you for sharing your experience and your perspective on that. Um, And Shari Hamid, I don't know if you have a comment, but Leslie also writes, could you please ask your guest to provide a brief background of how Hamas is funded?
4: Yeah, so... um... The the caller, what the caller mentioned, I actually thought he was going to describe it as a negative thing because um, basically what Israel does is it texts people or, or calls them on the phone or it drops leaflets half an hour and an hour before it blows, blows up your home, basically. I mean, that's what is essentially hap- happening, which is terrifying. I don't think that should be particularly reassuring to us that that that, that ruins lives. It ruins livelihoods and it destroys um, a territory. And, you know, as we've discussed, it'll take many years to rebuild. So, you know, I think it's a little bit odd to kind of tell Palestinians, you should be grateful that you're getting a text message notifying you that you're about, your home is about to be blown up. Um, on the um, on the point about what the IDF, the, the Israeli army says, and how they they kind of talk about how they go out of their way to minimize civilian casualties, I would just say that, um, as as observers, as private citizens, we should always have a bit of skepticism towards official government claims, particularly in the fog of war. And I would apply that to my own country, the U.S., that if the U.S., um, let's say, struck a wedding in Afghanistan, which has happened, or something similar to that, we as Americans should call our government to account and ask, are we actually doing enough to, to protect civilian lives? And until there's independent verification on some of these difficult cases, for example, um, when um, the building with the Associated Press was bombed, um, the U.S. government has asked for evidence, credible evidence, that that was a justified target. And Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said that he has so far not seen credible evidence. So I think that is what we have to look for. And we have to be um, and we have to be a little bit critical in our assessments of official statements
2: And uh, we're running out of time here, but just wanted to see if you could address Leslie's question about which country or countries are the allies or backers of Hamas. Could you give a brief point about how Hamas is funded?
4: Yeah, Hamas receives um, some level of support from Iran, um, support from Qatar, but I I would say it's more in the form of... um, Diplomatic, diplomatic, and political support, where Iran p- does provide some military um, backing as well. Um, so those are. It has an ally in Turkey, which is sympathetic to Hamas because of some of the the kind of um, ideological links between their Islamist-leaning government and Hamas, which is obviously an Islamist organization as well. Um, But then there's also funding that goes into Gaza, which is not for Hamas per se, but is to keep Gaza running. And I think we have to make a distinction. So just because money is going into Gaza doesn't mean it's going to Hamas the organization. I mean, the U.N. operates. There's food aid. I mean, uh, Gaza is um, overwhelmingly dependent on outside assistance and aid to even to even survive.
2: Just if you could give a very brief answer to Darian, who wonders, I absolutely support the right of Israel to exist, but what is a way to engage in productive discussions about the right of all humans in the region to exist peacefully and sustainably? We just have 10 seconds, Shadi Hamid.
4: Well, we just have to be consistent. Everyone has the right to self-determination and everyone has the right to dignity, too. Um, And what we're seeing here, I think, is an affront to that in the case of the Palestinians.
2: Shadi Hamid, Julian Borgia, thanks to both of you for talking with us. My thanks to producer Susan Britton for today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum.
5: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.